Welcome to Bob Dylan American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is a podcast where we revisit each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums. We're taking a couple of weeks to listen back to each of them, and then we're getting together to have a good old discussion about them. We're up to episode 11, which is New Morning, released in October 1970. So hi, Rich. We're back in again. As usual, we'll kick off with a look back at how we came to the record to begin with. So what's your prior experience with New Morning? Very little, actually. I I knew, if not for you, I think I was familiar with it, first of all, from the Bootleg series. And I knew very little else about this album. I think it's quite interesting, actually, because this is just not an album that in my adolescence was ever talked about. I knew that Bob Dylan had this fabled kind of Christian period. And I just assumed, I think, as a kind of, I don't know, 17, 18 year old, that this, because of the title, was one of those albums. And so I I kind of gave it a wide berth, really, I suppose. And Interestingly, no one has ever, or no one that I can remember anyway, has ever kind of tried to steer me towards it. So, um, so I was pretty new to it and, uh, and I enjoyed it. What about you? Pretty different. So this is one of my favourite Bob Dylan albums going way back when. I, I agree with you in the sense that it's one of those albums that, that very rarely gets talked about or certainly very rarely got talked about when I was getting into Bob Dylan 25, 30 years ago. So, yeah, I, I guess the, the thing for me about this record is that when I came to this one, I had absolutely no preconceptions about it. It was just something that I'd picked up and I hadn't heard anything about it, good or bad, previously. And I, I do wonder whether it's even possible to do that nowadays in the the internet age. Of course, as we always like to say, we were doing this in the in the days when you'd have to borrow a record off your friend or or pop to the library, um, or even heaven forbid, go out and part with cold hard cash to to listen to these things. But yeah, so getting into Bob Dylan in those days, I'd done a bit of reading. I'd heard his uh, biggest records. And this was the era where there was a lot of sort of think pieces in magazines like uh, Mojo and Uncut and things like that. But none of them ever talked about New Morning. So I could come to it almost completely fresh. And I think that looking back now, that was quite important because I knew that I liked Bob Dylan. I knew that I loved those um, canonical albums that we've, we've already talked about. But this was the one where I thought, well, actually, this is a record that no one talks about. And I'm absolutely loving it. So actually, I'm a Bob Dylan fan. And that was what kind of, you know, set me off on, on that road, I suppose. So yeah, definitely, definitely one that's been with me for a long time. And uh, I think even after this three or four weeks of listening to it on a loop, it still remains a favourite of mine. So very pleased that the experience hasn't soured that for me. It's nice, isn't it? Well, certainly when you're in your, in your teens and you discover something and you feel almost like you've discovered it for the first time, it's yours, um, particularly if it's something that isn't being written about a lot. I mean, I've been very impressed by this. I mean, if we talk a little bit about some of the general background stuff, I mean, it was recorded, this one was recorded in New York, wasn't it? So um, it was 1970, but whereas he'd had previous dalliances in Nashville, this is very much a New York album. And I think I'm right in saying that it kind of, the recording of it sort of overlapped with self-portrait a little bit. Yeah, so he, he did record this in New York, didn't he? And I think the first recording session was in the March of 1970. So still very much overlapping with the self-portrait. 
recording sessions. And even when he was he was wrapping this up, I think that was in the June, so um, very shortly after Self-Portrait had come out. So there's a lot of overlap, isn't there, between the two records. And according to, to, to accounts, at one time, the records might have been a lot closer in substance as well, because he certainly did a lot of recording of cover versions that could have ended up on New Morning, but didn't. And also, of course, some of those songs that he, he wrote that did appear on New Morning could have appeared on Self-Portrait, but he, he evidently made the decision to to exclude them. So that's interesting, isn't it? Whether he was he was quite consciously sticking with the covers for self-portrait. And perhaps he had an idea that he was going to do a kind of self-portrait version two. And he, he moved away from that as the process evolved. What do you reckon, Rich? There's still part of me that wonders if the public outcry, for want of a better word, that greeted self-portrait might have kind of influenced that direction. I mean, we spent most of the last podcast kind of defending self-portrait and uh, certainly picking bits and pieces and saying, oh, this is actually really rather good. I've got to say that New Morning felt like a bit of a breath of fresh air after having <laughs> done that. And I, I, I thought, yeah, this is this is a, a proper record. And, and the thing is that I think it was Rolling Stone magazine that said something along the lines of, oh, we've got Dylan back. And I think that it was very, very well received at the time, wasn't it? And so I think irrespective of whether it was a conscious decision or whether it was a kind of result of evolution of the recording sessions, I think it was absolutely the right thing that he did here to kind of go back to playing in the studio with a band and playing originals. And yeah, I mean, I I think it's all the better for it. Yes, it was very well received, wasn't it? And it was greeted with that headline in Rolling Stone, which was a very, a very different headline than the uh, even more famous uh, reception that Self-Portrait got in the same publication. Um, and certainly much better received than Self-Portrait, although that isn't saying very much, is it? But yeah, while I was listening to this album this time, it, it got me thinking about something that's become a bit of a trope in rock journalism, this idea of the return to form. And I was thinking probably the, um, the example par excellence of that is is R.E.M. In their, in their middle and later years. I think pretty much every album after Monster in 94 uh, or whenever it was, was greeted as a return to form and uh, every album would get a five-star review and they'd be saying this is much much better than the terrible predecessor and, and that's something that you get a lot now isn't it um, you know albums get fantastic reviews there's a very enthusiastic reception but then quite quickly they they sink back into the pack don't they and they don't seem to to stick as um as the classics that they're greeted as originally. And part of that's down to the nature of music journalism and the, the commercial imperatives, of course. But I, I wondered if New Morning was one of the first examples of that, because it certainly was seen as this is Bob Dylan coming back. But within a relatively few number of years, I think it had lost that reputation. Certainly by the time we're talking about Blood on the Tracks um, and his big tours later in the decade, I don't think anybody was harking back to New Morning as a particular classic. And certainly by the time that you and I were discovering this record in the 90s, it had been almost completely airbrushed out of history. I mean, little of this stuff appears on the, the, the greatest hits compilations that came out, the best of and stuff like that. So yeah, an interesting one. It, it certainly did have a very positive reaction, but I think that was, that was quite a temporary thing. Yeah, the idea that very little of it features on any of the greatest hits compilations is quite an interesting point because, I mean, it almost suggests a kind of conscious decision on the part of the record company to kind of let this one lie and, oh, this wasn't the, the, the one that kind of caused so much of a stir. I suppose as well, it, it, in some instances, it's, it's, a, it's just down to luck, isn't it? What else was going on at the time? What else was being released? 
how much of an impact did the album make kind of thing. But yeah, it, it definitely it's I think that idea of airbrushed out of history <laughs> seems uh, seems quite telling. Definitely. Yeah, and and I suppose the thing is, in a weird way, self-portrait has a has a, a much stronger legacy just because of the, the ferocity of the reaction and the notoriety it, it, um, it engendered, and, and therefore it had more of a. I suppose it was, it was more fertile ground for that reappraisal that took place in more recent years. But yeah, I, I was going to say. I mean, I, I I think again, one of the, the amazing things about the internet age is the way in which these albums are reevaluated and. I think, as I say, when I discovered this album in the 90s, I, I really loved it, but it felt like nobody else loved it at all. But nowadays, I think you can't really have that experience because if you look up an album like this online, you'll immediately find a community of people who do absolutely love it. And you do get these, uh, these reappraisals, you know, and you get, you get defenders of records like this. There was an episode of Is It Rolling, Bob, isn't there, where they talk about New Morning a lot. And um, that's the sort of thing that you wouldn't have had in, in the 90s or any time previously, I think. So yeah, it, it became a little bit of a lost, a lost classic, I think, as much as any record by somebody as well known as Bob Dylan can be. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things about that as well is, I mean, I don't know but, about you, but when I, was, when I was a kid, when I was buying records, certainly, I think you'd have had to go to quite a big record store to find this album. I think you, you kind of run-of-the-mill high street record stores, they'd have had the greatest hits, they'd have had the big 60s albums, and they'd have probably had whatever was the most recent release. But... I don't know about you, but I don't think I very often saw New Morning in, in a record shop. Oh, definitely. And even in those great big mega stores, I remember, <laughs> I remember you know, things like um, arranging to meet friends there. And then while I was waiting, just flipping through the, the racks and, and checking, no, they haven't got New Morning in yet. Come back again next month, they might have it in there. So yeah, there was definitely something about that. You had to hunt these things down, didn't, didn't you? But we're, we're sounding like a couple of old codgers now. Well, this, this is it. The, the other thing that doesn't do it any favours, and this is not the only Bob Dylan album to which this applies, but the cover is not the kind of thing that grabs a kid of sort of 17, 18 years of age, I don't think. I just don't, I mean, it's not an interesting cover, is it? Was it? <laughs> No, but there's a couple of interesting photos on the back, aren't there? Um, I really don't know the story behind those, but but you're right. The the cover itself um, isn't particularly arresting. No, sorry, I'm just going to say you look at something like Desire, for example, and he looks quite exotic on that. I mean, he doesn't look exotic on on New Morning. Yeah, um, no, I was just going to say, um, speaking about the 90s, though, what, one of the things that I remember about that time was, of course, the man in me off this record features very prominently in the Coen Brothers film, The Big Lebowski. I think that was from 97 or 98 or something like that. And I, and I forgot to mention last time that um, Wigwam appears in The Royal Tenenbaums, doesn't it? Uh, which is a little bit later. But I, I did think that that's, well, first of all, on a personal level, I was I was very pleased to, uh, when I was in the cinema and, I, and The Man in Me came on because I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's something I know about. But I think that's part of this sort of general kind of almost cultural reappraisal of Dylan that was going on around that time that, that really hit its zenith when Time Out of Mind came out. You know, he went from being this guy who was sort of pretty much seen as being washed out and not really relevant to being someone who was much more back in the cultural mainstream. So yeah, it's interesting that The Man in Me plays a role in that and it works brilliantly in that film, I think. The other one, of course, is Hurricane appears in Dazed and Confused from a 
couple of years earlier. But yeah, it's interesting that that kind of cultural effect was definitely going on around this time, but still people weren't necessarily talking about this as a great album in the midst of all of that. No, that's that's absolutely right. And it's it kind of rescued him from a very low watermark. And as you say, um, started to, the, the acted as a bit of a catalyst, really, some of those movies, I think, in terms of kind of creating new interest. Are we all right to talk a little bit about Links with the Immortal Bard at this moment? Uh, go on then, Rich, I'll let, you, yeah. uh, I'll let you kick off with that. Okay, well, I mean, obviously this, this podcast is called Bob Dylan American Shakespeare and on some albums it's easier and some albums it's rather more difficult to kind of make links with, uh, with Shakespeare and, and the idea of Bob Dylan and, and Shakespeare both being such cultural touchstones, really. I mean, we've got a few ideas, or I've got a few ideas, I should say, in, in terms of this one. I think that we can talk quite a lot about the pastoral here, the pastoral, the pastoral, however we want to say it. I think what we've got with this album, and in, if we kind of cast our minds back to Shakespeare's own sort of history, is that I think there's an argument that could be made that both of these guys, both of these men, are very public figures at this point in time. I mean, Shakespeare, obviously, and Bob Dylan at this in 1970, definitely, whose real interests arguably lay elsewhere. So, I mean, you've got Shakespeare, of course, his public life, what he's famous for is in London, but his family life and the kind of stuff that we assume he's probably yearning for is in Stratford. And of course, that was a big distance. That was a considerable distance in the Elizabethan era compared to now, obviously. And then, of course, with Bob Dylan, you've got the idea that he's, I mean, he's, he's back now, arguably being a, a kind of metropolitan man. He's back recording in New York. And yet, as we've said for the last few records, his interests seem to be family, seem to be um, the kind of more rural way of life uh, in Woodstock, etc. I mean, by this stage, they're no longer in Woodstock. It's... I think it's it's an interesting sort of idea, this this kind of conflict that both we could suggest that both of these men feel or felt, where you've got Bob Dylan being drawn between his art and the kind of pull of family and Shakespeare um, being exactly the same. And I think I think there's a sense that that kind of comes through in the kind of pastoral nature, the sort of more the emphasis on family and the rural in some songs, certainly. On new morning what are you thinking about that mark is that way out there or is that <laughs> or does it fly <laughs> i think it flies i mean that's one of the things about new morning isn't it that's uh that when it is discussed it's always talked about as this album where dylan's presenting himself as the, the family man that kind of woodstock setting um is 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 infused in quite a lot of the songs isn't it i mean particularly New Morning itself is is a song about the country it, it, on, on one level, isn't it? So that that's certainly present. But I think you're also right to point to the, the tensions that, that seem to be apparent in that as well. I mean, this isn't an album like Nashville Skyline, where he's he's. I think on Nashville Skyline, he's trying to place himself in that country tradition, and and perhaps as we talked about, not quite succeeding. But it's fairly unambiguous, I think. Whereas here. There's, there's a heck of a lot of ambiguity, actually. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why this album stands up so well. And certainly for me, it's more engaging than the Nashville skyline. So actually, okay, you've got New Morning where he's got this, um, this very standard rustic imagery. But then the other song that's closest to that is, is One More Weekend. And I know you've got quite a lot to say about this song, um, but, but one thing I just wanted to flag is that the imagery there is, is kind of countryfied, but I feel it's, it's, more, it's more bluesy in a way. And, and actually, 
I don't know if this says more about me than it does about the song, but I feel like some of that imagery is actually a lot raunchier, almost like um, sexier than it appears at first glance. And it's not it's not necessarily actually the kind of, you know, rustic countryside idyll that it, it first appears to be. Yeah, go on, Rich. No, I was just going to say, I think you're you're right there, because it's more backwoodsy almost. I mean, if we think about those Delta Blues players who are playing in the 20s, 30s, whatever. I mean, yeah, they were they were playing very stripped down songs, which were purportedly about kind of uh, rural concerns. But they were, if you delve beneath the surface, they were very, very raunchy and very suggestive and packed full of innuendo. And I think, I think that's potentially what's happening here. I mean, America does have a, a pastoral tradition, but it, it, I mean, musically, you're talking more about going back into the blues, for example, or back into those very kind of old fashioned kind of folk stylings, I suppose. And so I think something like One More Weekend definitely, definitely kind of aligns itself with the blues, doesn't it? In a way that it, it, it doesn't become this, this kind of rural idyll, as you say. Yeah, I'd go along with that. Yeah, and I, and I think that that applies in a in a different way, a slightly different way to to a lot of this record. So, <laughs> so um, Winterlude, for example, if we're gonna uh, if we're gonna go there, yeah, sure, it's got this this countryside imagery, but it's 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 pretty sardonic, isn't it? It's pretty tongue in cheek. It's not a it's not a a presentation of you know this is what my life's all about, and you know this isn't isn't life wonderful. And and in the same way, actually, um, time passes slowly. Is a, is, a, is a much more substantial song, but it's full of all this stuff about the red rose fading and I once knew a girl and all this sort of stuff, isn't it? It's yeah. it, there's, 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 there's something more transient, I suppose, than that than you might at first think from that from that first verse. And lastly, just on this on this tip, the most famous verse that people talk about uh, when they talk about the the pastoral um, idyll that he's he's setting up here is the last verse of Sign on the Window where he talks about um, having a bunch of kids that will call him par and yeah. the last line is, that, that must be what that it's all about. what it's all about, yeah. The, I mean, I think the, yeah. the must there is, what's that? That's like conditional tense, isn't it? Which kind of suggests yes. there's, no, there's no kind of definite understanding that that's the case. I think that's that's also the thing about the pastoral as well, isn't it? It's this idea that it's it's kind of unattainable, really. And I mean, just while we're, while we're on it, actually, I've got a theory. It's probably not really my theory. I'm sure there's loads of uh, people that are much better versed than me that have come up with this. But both Shakespeare and Bob Dylan seem to seek solace in the, uh, in, in the pastoral, particularly when, when things maybe haven't been going quite so well. I mean, if we think about self-portrait as obviously not being something that was particularly well received, we could maybe consider that this kind of dive back into the backwoods rustic is, is maybe a bit of a reaction against that. There is an example, I mean, Shakespeare in 1610, I was going to say released then, that's not really the right word. Um, <laughs> he, he wrote um, Cymbeline, which was, I mean, I, I, I'm not entirely sure how we proved this, but it wasn't very well received by all accounts. Um, without the aid of a time machine, I can't uh, check the uh, validity of that particular uh, kind of claim, but it was very badly received and... So he followed it up with Winter's Tale in 1611, which in particularly in, I think it's Act 4, you've got a very kind of pastoral sense in that. You know, you've got your, your rustic area, your natural beauty, and then the typical sort of stock figures of shepherds and 
disguised princes and princesses and beautiful people who are really noble and all of that kind of stuff. It kind of ticked all of those boxes. And so I think there's, there's something there. There's a kind of sense of, well, do you know what? The, the modern world is, is, is kind of frowned on my last piece of work. I'm going to kind of go backwards in time. I'm going to go for something a little bit more simplistic. And I think, I think there's a case to be made that both Dylan and Shakespeare kind of have a tendency to do that. And I'm well aware that there are a number of holes in that theory, um, but that's that's my that's my two cents. <laughs> well, and it applies directly to "Sign on the Window," doesn't it? Actually, because throughout that song, the the singer's positioning himself actually on Main Street, isn't he? Where it's it's raining and it might <laughs> it might end up sleeting, and the object of his affection is 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 far away on the other side of the country. And then it's then that he comes into this um, idyllic vision that pops into his head. So yeah, it's in that way, it's very very much even within that song structure itself, it's very much a retreat into something that's as you say unattainable actually. So. I do think it's it's kind of too simplistic to say that this is the album where Dylan's presenting himself as a as a country gentleman. I don't think that really stacks up. Although you can see why people have been drawn to those sorts of images because they are so starkly different from what had gone before on even on self-portrait, I suppose, which is much more of a kind of I don't know. It's it's still a kind of Americana, isn't it, on self-portrait? But it's not. It's it doesn't it doesn't have those those countryfied images in quite the same way. No, I mean, I think in the, the early days of this podcast, as it were, we talked an awful lot about the early albums and the way that Dylan was forever wearing masks and that no one could really trust what he was doing or how he was presenting himself. And that hasn't gone away by this stage, by 1970. I think it's just that the more albums that he's put out there, the more different masks that he's wearing, you don't tend to think in terms of persona or mask wearing. I think you just tend to think in terms of mystery. And so we can never really trust the idea of him being a, well, folk singer, protest singer, country gentleman, or any of these kind of things. It's kind of whatever he is at that point in time is, is kind of what he's projecting to the world, isn't it? Definitely. I guess while we're on the subject of, of Sign on the Window, probably worth uh, mentioning the performance. It is gorgeous. Clinton Halen, uh, for what it's worth, rates this as one of his great undiscovered gems, or at least semi-hidden gems, because he doesn't have a particularly high opinion of, of New Morning as a whole. But I think it is a fantastic performance. I, I like the fact that the band kicks in. I know some people prefer or would have preferred a more stripped back approach throughout, but I think the whole thing really works. And, and I think his piano playing is fantastic on, on that track and on quite a lot of the rest of his record. No, I'd agree with that totally. And I actually think that the, I think the musically, this is very, very strong as a record. I mean, one of the criticisms that we had in uh, about self-portrait was the, the, the kind of lack of believability, almost the lack of conviction that some of the performances had, the fact they felt a bit more like demos. I mean, you listen to this and, and, and he's fully committed, isn't he? There's, there's a real kind of sense of this is like a proper performance with all of these songs. And I think it's all the, the, the stronger for it actually I think it, it it works extremely extremely well and I agree this is a this is kind of one of the standouts really sign on the window I think I mean I love New Morning as well the title track I mean what, what what's your take on that one Mark? I do enjoy it yeah um, and I actually think it's his best 
country rock song. We had quite an esoteric discussion didn't we, uh, around Nashville Skyline about what, what country rock is and what it should be and what it perhaps uh, is and shouldn't be. But yeah, I think this is, this is much more um, actually in line with what most people would call country rock for good or bad. There's a kind of eaglesy feel to it, but, but in, a, in, a, in a non-prejudicial way, if I can, if I can put it like that. You do get that, that country rock feel coming through in a really strong way here, which I think you miss on Nashville Skyline. Yeah, I mean, country rock was was kind of evolving, really, at this moment in time, wasn't it? I mean, if you think about Sweetheart of the Rodeo uh, was obviously before this and music moved very quickly in the 60s, but it was, I mean, it's a great record, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, but it feels very country, whereas what you've got by the kind of early, mid-70s is a very kind of stylized country rock with the emphasis I think more on rock rather than just straight ahead country and and I think this I mean this one kind of reminds me a little bit of Old 55 by Tom Waits which given that you just mentioned the Eagles fits in quite nicely because that's a that feels like a a sort of country rock kind of song it's got the it's got many of the hallmarks and that kind of driving kind of rhythm to it but yeah I think I think it's it's a it's a great great performance um this one I'd say it's probably one of my if not my actual um, standout track on the album. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It is, a, it is a very strong performance. The other one that's been picked out by numerous people over the years is uh, Went to See the Gypsy. I mean, it's a tremendous song. We'll, we'll talk about that more later, I'm sure. But, but just as a performance, it's tremendously strong. And I think that's, that's the other thing about this record that really socks home for me. As you say, we do believe him on almost all the, the tracks here in a way that we haven't done since... John Wesley Harding, I think. Um, and I think what stops this record becoming one of his truly great ones is that it's not quite even in that, in that way. I mean, you kick off with If Not For You, which became a massive hit in, in other people's hands. Um, and then you get this series of really strong performances. But then, but then at the end of side one, you hit Winterlude and If Dogs Run Free, and it just, it just dips, let's say. I think you're right, New Morning really kicks it off again very strongly, and then you've got Sign on the Window, The Man in Me, and all that stuff. But then again, I think it just drops off a little bit in terms of the conviction, apart from anything else, regardless of the quality of the songs at the end. I think the conviction's lacking on some of those later songs on both side one and side two, but still really welcome to have what we do have, which is, I would say, seven or eight really fantastic performances. Yeah, I'd, I'd totally go along with it. I mean, if, if Dogs Run Free, I, I can't stand this song. I just think it's awful. I mean, I, I tr- I've tried. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I think for my money, anyway, <laughs> things tail off considerably at that point. But I think you're right, though, in terms of that kind of patchiness, the lack of consistency is quite important because that's what makes an album like Blonde on Blonde so astonishing. That's what makes an album like Highway 61 uh, so incredible it's just that kind of relentless brilliance and I think maybe I mean again this this might be kind of sweeping generalizations here but we're really kind of entering now 1970 the sort of golden age of the of the LP aren't we I think I'm right in saying that 1968 was the first year when album sales outstripped those of singles and I think that that's that's really quite telling because people's expectations for what an album should do had altered, hadn't they? I mean, if, if you look at the start of the 60s, it's, it's no longer Frank Sinatra live at wherever it is and let's, or, or, or let's just chuck a whole load of singles together and put it out there. I think people were expecting more of, a, of an experience, really. And 
And I think that that kind of quality control and that consistency was something that audiences demanded. And so I think maybe, maybe that might go some way to explaining why this one hasn't maybe endured quite as well as some other albums of his. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because, you know, there's this, there's this kind of weird tension, isn't there, all the way through the history of, of pop music between artists wanting to, to develop and, and make a statement and, uh, you know, take their craft in new directions and, and the technology and the, the commercial delivery systems. And it's where they, they, they sort of constrain each other, but you, get, you, you tend to get these, these shifts, don't you? So as you say, I mean, you know, um, the LP was very much uh, a child of the 1960s, wasn't it? You know, you, you couldn't have had this in the 1940s just because of the way people used to listen to music. And of course we see now, you know, in the modern age, but the LP can't have the impact it used to have just because of the way we, we now listen to music. So yeah, there's definitely something in that. And I think you're right that it wasn't just a shift towards albums as, as collections of songs and as, um, and as uh, things that should be considered as, as, as artistic, as holistic artistic statements. It was also a shift towards a, a kind of um, navel gazing, almost academic way of looking at records. And you had the whole adult orientated rock thing that was, that was taking yeah. off. And you're right, in that context, self-portrait was very much an anachronistic release whereas this was much more something that the good people at Rolling Stone could get their teeth into and then that that undoubtedly I think played into why it had such a such a good reception yeah the uh, holistic artistic I like that that's uh, that, that that rhymes and you know it rhymes um I think no I, I totally go along with that um I mean this is sort of the era that that music grows up a little bit for better or for worse but I also think it's interesting that the two geniuses, undisputed geniuses that we're dealing with on this podcast, so Dylan and Shakespeare, of course, were both operating at probably the optimum times for their particular artistic endeavours. I mean, as, as you've just said, th this was peak kind of vinyl era. I mean, vinyl records were cheap suddenly, and so they could be disseminated very, very easily. And, and so Bob Dylan is, is writing at this particular point. And I mean, Shakespeare, it was the same kind of thing. There's arguably never in history was the English speaking world more kind of in tune with listening to language. I mean, a lot during the Elizabethan era, a lot of the, the kind of age old religious rites and the sort of popular celebrations, they'd been banned. And so the theatre was the outlet. It was, it was to what everyone's attention was kind of turned. And so you had this intense kind of focus on on language and of course the English language being as it is very odd in as much as you can almost say anything and it will have multiple meanings it was the perfect vehicle for uh, subversive kind of messages to be to be kind of conveyed to audiences it was the perfect vehicle to allow Shakespeare to present kind of one face in much the same way as Bob Dylan wears masks and actually be meaning something else and as luck has it, Bob Dylan is, is kind of operating in this kind of on this hugely elevated artistic plane. Exactly this, the right moment, really, for vinyl albums to be released. And so it's kind of like a, a twist of fate, if I might uh, quote someone <laughs> at this point in time, um, that both, both of these guys were, you know, in, in exactly, I suppose, the right place at the right time for what they were doing. Absolutely. And, and the one thing that Bob Dylan's always been a master at uh, well, one of the many things he's always been a master at is seizing that opportunity. 
in the in the cultural milieu. Just as he, he rode the protest song movement, he, he he certainly he certainly did cash in on the album boom, didn't he, with those mid sixties records? And you know you could see this this period as his attempt to to fit into the new the new normal, if you like, with the way that this kind of more adult, more um, album focused um, industry was developing. Uh, you know, self portrait didn't hit the mark. This one did. You know, we're going to see him soon doing film soundtracks. Yes. And then we're back into another run of, of fantastic records. And you can, you can see that as, a, as an artistic and a, and a personal narrative arc, which it certainly is. But it's also perhaps reflective of, of the way the, the industry was going and the way he was positioning himself within that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Music. Everyone loves it. But who listens to the lyrics? We do. She doesn't live in a shantytown. She lives in capital S shantytown. <laughs> yeah. You put patches from old shantytown on a resume, <laughs> you're not getting that job. You know what I mean? On the Story Song Podcast, we break down the lyrics you've heard a thousand times. Go so, to Barnes & Noble, 20 bucks, farming for dummies. Right. <laughs> Chapter one, don't farm at night. Chapter two, don't farm in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> the index is just like blizzard. See also, don't. We also look at the history of the song. So the monster match is on the R&B <laughs> Clearly it should be on the monster chart. <laughs> oh, it was, it was number one on the monster chart. Oh, okay. good, good, good. The Story Song Podcast. Find it wherever you download podcasts. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about tracks then shall we i mean we've we've mentioned uh unless you've got anything really good to say about if dogs run free i'm happy not to uh <laughs> time on that one but i mean you can you could sort of throw a, a dart at a pinboard of this album and, and most of them would have something worth talking about i mean should we should we talk about when to see the gypsy because i mean i love that one and you've already mentioned how it's a it's a corker i mean is it about elvis mark yeah i'm gonna say it is because I think it's about Elvis. I think it's about Elvis. I mean, you've got the went to see the gypsy staying in the big hotel. I mean, it could well be uh, Las Vegas-esque. And then I, I love the ending of it. So I watched the sun come rising from that little Minnesota town. It, it almost relates this mystical figure, doesn't it, to to something quite personal, I suppose, which uh, which I guess is what, what, what Bob Dylan is getting um, at here. I mean... What do you reckon in, in terms of how does, how does Elvis manifest? <laughs> well, usually on a lot, um, lot of people, a lot of people want to know that. <laughs> <laughs> According to the front page of the daily sport, he's usually in a supermarket in Blackburn, isn't he? But, <laughs> uh, no, I agree entirely. I mean, there's some discussion, isn't there, about whether he actually did go to see Elvis in, in Las Vegas uh, to see him perform or whether, whether he met him in a hotel or whatever. I, I have no idea of the truth of that. But yeah, I think it, it works certainly as, a, as an account, even if a, a fictionalised one of, of going to see Elvis. And it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? it, it I mean, and even if that's completely wrong, it still adds a lovely lens in which to, to see the song through, doesn't it? One of the things that I, I loved about this song this time that I'd never really thought about before is I think it ties into a couple of other things on this record where we see Dylan as a as an introvert. Now, now bear with me with it on this. There's that stuff about him going to the, the room and, and meeting Elvis or meeting the gypsy. But then he goes out of the room quite quickly. He wants to go out to, to make a call. And by the time he goes back in, everyone's, everyone else is gone. And, and uh, on Day of the Locust as well, there's all this stuff about him um, um, sticking his head into a room and, and, and not wanting to go in. And then just being absolutely delighted to get away from the whole the whole ceremony at the end. And I, I just thought that was lovely. There's this, this idea of him as this, this incredibly famous person who everyone's got all their attention focused on. But actually, 
you know, these sorts of situations are extremely draining if, you, if you're introverted, as I sort of suspect Dylan might be a little bit. And actually, you know, you're quite glad to get out of those environments. I mean, I'll put it this way. If I, if I was going into um, a room where I was meeting um, somebody as famous as Elvis, I think I'd be running out to, to make a call quite quickly afterwards. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the, the idea of the introverted. I think the other thing as well is that the the idea of Elvis I mean Bob Dylan famously said that he he talked about Elvis as having crash landed from a burning star onto American soil I mean it's that idea that he was almost like a supernatural being um, this is Elvis that I'm talking about now and um and so it's this idea that would would you want to meet someone like that or would you want to spend much time with them because I, I suppose you could never help but have your expectations dashed i mean i know that the beatles met him didn't they but they john lennon i think that said that he considered that elvis that mystical magical figure had kind of died the moment he went into the army and so i think that there's there's always that kind of conflict isn't there between someone that means so much to you in your adolescence it's like what could what's what's going to happen i mean to, to use it an everyday example here I, I used to be a very big admirer of ray parlor when he was a player but then I saw him do the uh, FA Cup draw, and uh, and I was very very disappointed, Mark. So you know you can't have you can't have everything. Well, I mean, if Ray Parler's got feet of clay, and he, and he looks a lot like you actually, Rich. I mean, no one else knows that. <laughs> just very, he does. So. No, absolutely. Um, uh, and of course, it's interesting you mentioned the Beatles because yeah, there's a, there's you were a say great it's bit interesting in... you mentioned Ray Parler. I was thinking, my goodness, <laughs> we've got a hell of a link going on here that I hadn't foreseen. This is a... sorry. Let's go back to the Beatles. I'm, I'm just imagining now uh, the, um, the the upsurge in Google traffic uh, for searches <laughs> for Ray Parler as a consequence of this podcast. He was, he was the fifth Beatle, wasn't he? Like, he played before George Best. Uh, George Best? God, where am I going with this? Pete Best, George Best. We're going round and round in strange uh, circles. <laughs> okay, let's, let's go back to the Beatles. And otherwise, we'll break yeah. Google. We'll have broken the internet. <laughs> so, yeah, after they... <laughs> Um, yeah, they didn't meet Ray Parler, but they did meet Elvis, didn't they? And, and um, can't have what was it? it <laughs> <laughs> in um, in anthology, they talk about that. And I think it's McCartney says he always felt a bit sorry for Elvis. Maybe I'm misremembering this. Maybe it might have been somebody else. But the idea was the Beatles always had each other, and Elvis was just by himself, so no one else knew what it was like to be Elvis. And of course, the obvious parallel is no one else knows what it's like to be Bob Dylan. So. If they did meet, and you know, um, well, you know, I'm not sure whether they did or not. There's that element to it, but also this idea for Dylan that Elvis was ten years down the track, and was there something to be learned from Elvis's experience? Was this where Dylan was going to be ending up? Yeah, there's, there's that angle to it as well, isn't there? But regardless of that, a, a tremendous track certainly, and definitely one of the highlights on the record for me too. Any others you want to pick out, uh, Rich? Well, I think, I mean, it would be probably remiss not to talk a little bit about if not for you, which is just a gorgeous song i'm aware that we've probably overcompensated with uh, shakespearean links but there I, I would make the case that this is quite similar in many respects to sonnet 145 which is probably for anne hathaway okay uh, at least that's what the uh, the people that know about such things seem to suggest 
And I mean, this one probably uh, very likely to be about Sarah Lowndes, his, his, his wife. I mean, there's, there's something about this work which it's quite blazon-esque really, isn't it? It's just in praise of this, uh, of, of this female figure. Yeah, I mean, it's lovely. What, what, what's your take on, on If Not For You then, Mark? Yeah, I mean, as you say, um, it, 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 it kind of, I suppose it's one of those songs which is very simple. And I don't even think it's deceptively simple. But it's, it, there's something about the combination of the words and the performance that makes it, makes it into something larger than what the, the simple words convey on, on first reading. And, and it's, it's been picked up by many people, hasn't it? It was, it was uh, recorded with George Harrison, of course, and George put it on his, uh, his monster-selling record. Uh, did, did I read that um, George Harrison's record actually kept New Morning off the top spot later in the year? I think that might be true. Sounds like it might be true. Do you know what? I didn't know that, but that's... Um, Harrison plays the guitar on the bootleg version as well. This. That's right. And yeah, he does. I, I actually prefer the bootleg version myself, but um, it might just be because that was the first one that I... The, the first version of it that I heard. It's, it's just that you're right. It, it's sort of the perfect kind of synthesis of words and music, and it's just everything about it, the pace that it sort of lollops along at, the feel, the... It, it just... It's it's very very kind of catchy as well, isn't it? Lest we forget. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that the version on the album actually is probably even more catchy than the the bootleg series version and Harrison's version, which I think is closer to the bootleg series. Question of taste, isn't it? I, I think I probably agree with you, but I, I prefer the the slightly slower ones. They, they they're, they're they're more textured. I think both Harrison's version and the version that Harrison and Dylan do together, I think, feel more textured, uh, more musical. But the version on the album's fine. I love it. It's uh, it, it rattles along, and it's a it's a lovely song, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And on on the subject of this one, actually, we've got Jerry Close from Twitter, and thank you very much for all of you who've uh, who've posted either things for us to discuss on Twitter or suggestions or, or any of those kind of things. But Jerry Close um, proffered the idea or the question, I should say, is the man in me arguably a response to if not for you what are we thinking mark because i think that that's a fair a fair point really i mean i think that they kind of quite interesting counterpoints aren't they for each other whether or not bob dylan actually intended that i think we could certainly read it as being the case yeah i hadn't thought about that uh, before we we got the question um it, it, one thing rich about doing this it's absolutely fantastic isn't it um to get people's views on this sort of stuff because there's so much that we you know, you don't you don't think about when you listen to these records by yourself, and we get so much out of just chatting to each other, don't we? In terms of you know, having getting new perspectives on the records, but then to have other people chipping in as well with with, with things that we we would never even have considered is is just fantastic. So um, yeah, I definitely go along with that, and it's not something I'd I'd thought about before. Yeah, I mean, I I totally echo what you've just said. I mean, I know that we spend quite a lot of our time on this, harking back to the good old era of vinyl and stuff like that. But I mean you wouldn't have had a community like this that would have been able to communicate in the way that the Bob Dylan community can, I suppose, in the pre-internet era. So there's something really wonderful about that and the idea that people can kind of get together with these sort of shared interests. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll agree with Jerry Close on this one. I think that if if Not For You is the kind of blazon almost, then um, I suppose we could maybe suggest that the man in me is, is sort of a, a kind of chivalrous response to this and kind of um, follows a, a similar sort of theme really. So yeah, thank you very much for, for that one. I mean, uh, what other, 
what other songs do you want to discuss then, Mark? I mean, we've got, we've got a few. We, we mentioned One More Weekend earlier, didn't we? I mean, do you want to kind of leap back into that one? Well, the only other thing I wanted to raise about that was that it's really striking, isn't it, how, how bluesy that song is. Uh, I mean, we talked about the lyrics earlier, but the performance itself is, is much more muscular than anything else on the record. And it even put me back in mind of the sort of Highway 61 and London Blonde era uh, arrangements. I mean, I don't think it's got quite the force of those, um, but it's in that ballpark, isn't it? I think so, yeah. It's, it's got a lot more bite to it, hasn't it? I mean, yeah, the Highway 61, some of those are like sledgehammers, aren't they? It's not quite there. But, I mean, his vocal style on it as well, I, I was listening to it and I was thinking he sounds quite... There's something of the timbre of kind of Robert Johnson in the way that he's singing on this one. So it's, it's very, very bluesy compared to those kind of slightly more country rock sort of stylings that, um, that we've talked about on, on some of the others. So yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the the other one that I that really drew my attention was was Three Angels. I mean, in a weird way, this kind of reminds me a bit of Jack Kerouac and sort of late fifties, early sixties. He used to kind of appear on TV sometimes, and he'd do a bit of a reading, and, and sometimes have like jazz piano players in the background. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Mexico City Blues or something like that. There's been those that have sort of suggested that he's a bit uh, kind of Hank Williams-esque on this one as well, in that kind of Luke the Drifter persona. But um, yeah, I, I like it. I mean, it's, I don't really think I have any great idea about what it's about, but I, I enjoy it. What's your take on it, Mark? Yeah, I agree. Um, and it, it's funny you mention that because I've always imagined it being set in New York. And I don't think there's any reason actually... <laughs> reading the lyrics to, to suppose if it is it could be set in any town anywhere but I think there's that line the wildest cat from Montana always puts me in mind of Kerouac uh, I think that might even be a line out of On the Road or if it isn't there's a line very much like that in there somewhere because they do, go, um, so they yeah. do yeah they drive through Mont- well they, they, they certainly encounter all those kind of cowboys that are a bit crazy at one point don't they that's good. right yeah yeah, so there's definitely that in there. And yeah, I, it's one of those ones. I, I, I think it puts me in mind of the the John Wesley Harding record in the sense that it's a bit of a shaggy dog story and you can't really put your finger on it. But I think it's a lot less substantial than than those those songs. And so it lacks it lacks the power and the um the sort of the sort of emotional intensity, I suppose, of the best work on that record but I've always found it very pleasant and yeah yeah I agree with you it does always put me in mind of uh, the beats for some reason yeah I think it's I mean and we know that that, that Dylan was was influenced by the beats anyway obviously and and so it, it kind of makes sense doesn't it I suppose at this point we're, we're probably starting to head towards things like last thoughts and highlights and lowlights and stuff like that I mean do you want to do you want to kind of kick off on that Mark or is there anything else you want to mention no, let's uh, let's let's rattle on with that. Um, I think highlights we've talked about, haven't we? I think definitely for me, sign on the window when to see the gypsy. I've always had a soft spot for Day of the Locusts as well. Particularly, I love the the sense of release at the end of that when we're heading off towards the Black Hills. I think that's just a fantastic uh, ending. But yeah, those would be my three uh, three highlights. Low lights. I think this goes back to what I was saying at the start. You know, um, I loved this album, even though I knew it wasn't necessarily an all-time classic and even stuff like Winterlude and If Dogs Run Free you know I, I, I don't mind it it's alright I mean they're objectively the weaker songs of course they are but um, no all round I, I enjoy this record how about you Rich? Yeah I mean I'd, I'd echo that I mean I, I didn't have any real familiarity with this as an album before 
for this particular exercise, as it were. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's a very, very good album. I think the songs work together very effectively. I mean, yes, there's, there's weaker points, but if you take it as a kind of whole body of work, I think it's it feels like a proper record. It feels like a proper album in the in the way that the very disparate nature of kind of self-portrait doesn't. And so I, I really enjoyed it for that. As with all great Bob Dylan albums, I mean, I feel like I understand some of the songs and there's others that I don't understand and that in no way kind of lessens my enjoyment of them, really. So, so yeah, I, I thought it was a, a winner all the way. What about your kind of last thoughts then? Last thoughts on, uh, on New Morning, Mark? Well, yeah, I, I did think, actually, you know, that we, we tend to think in, in, in Dylan terms of these trilogies of records, don't we? So, obviously, the the mid-60s trilogy, which I think we, we ended up deciding wasn't a trilogy at all. Yeah. Um, and we've got, we've got the one coming up in the mid-70s. I wonder whether you could think about Nashville Skyline, Self-Portrait and New Morning as, as, a, as another trilogy, obviously of, of much lower quality if you are going to think of it in those terms. But you have got the overlaps between Self-Portrait and New Morning that we've talked about. You've got that um, consistency of, uh, of themes, I suppose. I mean, we've talk, touched on this already, but, you know, the, the, the kind of the country theme that, that he first starts with Nashville Skyline still continues through Self-Portrait and A New Morning. And, and I guess he's still, I think on all of those records, I get the feeling that he's, he's casting around for a, for a direction that he never quite settles on. But if we are thinking in terms of a trilogy, this is by far the best, the best of the three. And I also thought it sort of points the way towards the rest of the 70s, doesn't it? You know, I've always had a bit of a soft spot for, for 70s Bob in comparison to 60s Bob, just because it's a bit more of an underdog story, I suppose. But if we are thinking about that 70s trilogy and, and comparing it to the, the great 60s trilogy, um, then New Morning would be a lesser album, I guess, compared to Desire and Blood on the Tracks and Planet Waves. But I think it stacks up pretty well against the sort of the more minor 60s records. You know, I'd put this, I'd put this up there with Another Side easily. So yeah, just, for, just, a, just a, a record I really love listening to and still love listening to, despite having spent the best part of two or three weeks with it. It continues to be an enduring fave. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's one of those where, I mean, who knows at the time? I mean, I know it was well received, but I, I almost think that people might have kind of regarded this one in a, Oh, do you know what? He's still good. He's still got it. That was that was a bit of a surprise. It kind of snuck up on me on this. Like, I know how good he was, but he's still kind of capable of delivering this. I mean, it's uh, I suppose it's a little bit like when uh, Derby County managed to win the league with uh, Dave Mackay at the helm after the Clough era, for example. <laughs> that kind of, you know what? They've still got it. They can still do this. And But it's a bit of a surprise. We didn't really see that one happening. That's perhaps the worst analogy I've ever made, but I'm going to stick by that at this moment. Well, do you, do you know what, though, Rich? I think, <laughs> you, you, you know, I think you've overplayed that a little bit. I think it, it might be more like Arsenal winning the, the FA Cups with, with Wenger late on. Um, it's kind of like that uh, recapturing a former glory, but but everyone knows it's not quite really where it was but we all want to believe it is and so we'll pretend it is that's very good and actually bringing the arsenal back into it with uh, considering the earlier ray parlor <laughs> kind of bring, brings everything full circle in a, in a glorious kind of that dovetail very nicely mark well done <laughs> <laughs> okay well i think that's probably about us for for new morning so thank you very much for joining us on the podcast this time please do have a look for us on twitter please do follow the podcast and subscribe as well you can find us on twitter if you search at dylan american 
and we shall look forward to seeing you next time for Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Where we will be talking about the movie too. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>